we're starting another series, and we're going to be on Philippians um, for not quite a year, <laughs> but, um, but it's going to be a, a good five or six months that I plan to spend on Philippians. Um, not a lot of chapters, but there's a lot to cover in there, and, um, and I think as we go through it, I think you're going to see how much... Um, I love that Philippians is not one of the seven churches that John has a vision about in Revelation. They're a good church, um, and I hate to use that word. Every church has its issues and everything. But as I was going through some of this stuff, I was like, man, this is, there's a lot of Bentley in Philippians. And I'm not saying we're a perfect church by any stretch, but we're a good church. And, and there's some stuff in this that I think we can learn as a people individually first we need it in our lives individually but as a people the people of bentley that that will that will encourage us and 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 make us a better church um and and paul was really just a there's just a lot in this that reminded me of bentley and um and so i thought it was a great great place to start and so we're going to start our study if you like bible history and you like um the background story you're going to love today (laughs) Uh, because i want to really set the scene for what was going on, the, the, where Paul was when he wrote this, the condition of the people of, of Philippi. I think it's important that we understand the sort of the context, the cultural context of the Philippians. Um, before we start really getting into the meat of the word, I think it's important that we understand the setting in which this book was, was set. So I'm going to really spend a little bit of time today sort of setting the stage for, for this, this study that we're going to be on. And then I'm going to sort of introduce some of the themes and the ideas that we're going to talk about as we go through it. Uh, so if you, if you love history, you're going to love today. Um, and if you don't love history, I think you'll still find some things that are interesting for you. Uh, also, before I begin, I want to recommend uh, John MacArthur has a uh, he does he has these books that are that are on each book of the Bible. He has these little study Bible books for each book. And on Amazon, when I looked last, it was like seven dollars and ninety eight cents for his book on the Philippians. And um, and I'm gonna I've taken a lot of material from his his books, so it's gonna be one of my chief sources. So if you want just to do a little deeper dive for yourself, that book is on Amazon, um, probably other places as well. But I just happened to see it. That's John MacArthur, and it's the book is it's titled Philippi- <laughs> the Philippians. Um, I've always loved the book of Philippians for a number of reasons, and I've mentioned in this in in this setting before. One of the reasons I love it so much is is it, is it has such an emphasis on joy. That's the chief emphasis of, well, outside of Jesus, but that's the chief emphasis of Philippians. It is joy. And I do believe, like I said, I've been looking forward to this for a long time because I think we have a Philippians kind of church. And we're going to talk about that as we we move forward. My hope is that we will all grow in our understanding of the joy that God desires us to have in the midst of all the mess. And everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about when I say that word. I don't even need to, ex- to um, explain. We all have mess. We've got stuff that's going on. We're praying for you. Back there waving at me. We're pr- you've got mess going on. And we're praying for that. We're praying for that situation. There is, every one of us has stuff that is going on. And, and, and we can have joy in the middle of all of that. And not, I'm not talking about, and I'm going to get into this a lot deeper as we go further. I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness is a station, it's a condition, it's an emotion, and it changes and it goes up and it goes down. What I'm talking about is an abiding joy that comes from the Holy Spirit living inside of us that is not dependent upon our circumstances. Now, Jesus, of course, is the central theme of the book. 
but joy is, is number two. Um, Jesus is referred to 56 separate times, and there's only 104 verses in the whole book. So that's basically half the book Jesus has mentioned. But the theme of joy is also mentioned at least 16 times in 14 different verses. So that you can see that's the, the secondary theme. In the United States, what is our constitution, or not our constitution, our declaration tell us? We have the right to what? Life and the pursuit of happiness. And we consider that to be the, the I mean, that's the pinnacle, that's the top. And we pursue happiness as best we know how. I know it means different things to different people. There's, there's golfers in this room. I don't see Brother Allen, but if Brother Allen was here, he, golfing makes him happy. It, that's just what makes him happy. Cody, you like to fish. Cody's a fisherman. I, I, I would be bored doing either of those things. Just bored. I mean, I'd be like, now what? <laughs> you know, what are we going to do next? It's hot. <laughs> I'd be like a, a four-year-old complaining. Um, but everybody pursues happiness. We, we do our hobbies. We do the things that we enjoy. We do the things that we like. And we have so much economic and, 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 and prosperity, and we, we have political freedoms, and, and the whole, most of the world envies what we have in this country. But prosperity and freedom has not translated into Americans being happy. We can see that all around us. We can see that in our friends. We can see that in what people post on social media. We can see that everywhere. It hasn't made people happy. I, I would be... I think I'd be safe in saying that a large proportion of our population would not describe themselves as happy. There may be people in this room right now who don't describe themselves as happy, and that's okay. I'm not saying you got to put on a fake smile. It's okay not to be happy, because what I'm going to tell you today is it's not happiness that we're looking for, it's joy. The problem is that happiness is like chasing the end of a rainbow. I was driving home from, Nat from Shreveport one time, and just north of Natchitoches, that long straight stretch before you get into the kind of the hills, there was a, there was a rainbow, and it was like ending on I-49. Like up in the distance in front of me, it was ending on I-49. And I, 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 I didn't really think I was going to catch it, but in my mind, I was joking to myself, I'm going to catch the rainbow. I, you'd never catch the rainbow, do you? You move, it moves. You move, it moves. It continues to move in front of you. And happiness and chasing happiness is the exact same thing. Anytime you think you've reached it, it shifts. It moves into something else. Whatever I thought would make me happy when I was 14, if I just had a new pair of, if you're my age, if I just had a new pair of Jabot jeans, if I had some Jabot jeans and a polo shirt, then I was happy at 14. But you know what? That wasn't what defined happiness when I was 20. That wasn't what defined happiness when I was 30. And it wasn't what defined happiness when I was 40. It, happiness shifted. It changed. I got one thing, and then I wanted something else. Happiness is totally dependent upon our circumstances and our state of mind regarding those circumstances. And for the most part, Americans, we have bought into the lies of materialism. If we have enough stuff, we'll be happy. If I can just, I'll finance that at 29% interest for 10 years because it's going to make me happy. We do this all the time. We think that if we can just get one more thing, we will be happy. I want to ask you all a question, and I bet there's going to be, your spouses and significant others would probably not want to hear your answer. What did you get for Christmas eight months ago? Does it still give you the happiness? Do you, first of all, do you remember what it was? And second of all, does this still give you the happiness it did on December 25th of 2022? I bet you the answer is no. 
there are people in this room who are still trying to remember, what did I get for Christmas? (laughs) Material things simply cannot provide long-term happiness. Same thing is true for pleasure. There's nothing wrong with a good meal. I had a steak last night. Um, we went to Outlaw, I mean, Outback with my parents, and, and I had a steak. It was cooked medium rare. Um, it, it was really good. It was very tender. Sometimes you don't get the best steaks at Outback, but it was very good. I had a baked potato with everything on it. Um, if I had gone to a different place, I'd have gotten the, you know, the steakhouse creamed spinach. I love that dish. Um, all that, that makes me a happy man. Give me that. I'm a happy man. But you know what? For the moment. But if I eat all of that, oh. So I was really happy while I was chewing up the steak, but then it's like, we got to get somewhere where I can loosen my belt. We got to go home somewhere. And, and so the, the, the wonderful meal that I ate is soon consumed and the pleasure passes. I feel bloated and eventually I feel what again? Hungry. And you want to eat again. And the same is true for any kind of physical pleasure you want to put in there. Mental and emotional pleasures, they also fade. Fame and power, they'll rise and fall. Many people, I I was one of them, were very, very happy when LSU won the 2019 National Championship. I I let my boys stay up till almost midnight that night to to watch this game because it was such a, now they fell asleep in the third quarter, but I stayed up and and it was so awesome. But then, do y'all remember the 2020 season? (laughs) LSU couldn't win a game if their life depended on it. What do you do after you reach the top? Think about that for a second. And my purpose here is not to disparage the pursuit of happiness. I really am not. I, I'm as American as apple pie. I, I'll stand up for the national anthem. I, I believe in America. I love America. And I don't even want to suggest that enjoying the pleasures of life is a bad thing. I want you all to go have a steak dinner. Yeah. Brother Bruce is buying. <laughs> my point here is simply show that the pleasures of this life, they don't satisfy our souls. They're great. They're wonderful. We have fun. I I love that you all have hobbies. You need hobbies. We all need hobbies. We need to do the fun things of life. We need to take our kids on vacation. All that stuff is great, but they will not satisfy my soul. The soul needs a joy that can exist in any circumstance, no matter what is happening. The soul needs a joy that is present regardless of how much money is in my bank account how much cash is in my wallet, and even in the midst of physical or emotional pain. I could have gotten the worst news from the doctor this week. I could have gotten a letter from a lawyer saying there's divorce proceedings been started. I still can have joy in no matter what my circumstances are. And Paul explains this kind of joy and its source in the book of Philippians. So powerful, the stuff we're going to be going into. And in order to understand and gain the full impact of all that Paul says in the book, we need to know something about that milieu, the the whole world that was going on at this time when Paul was writing the letter. And and we need to know something about the people he was writing to. And so I want to give you this brief background of Philippians and the people of Philippi. There's some questions about the authorship of some of the epistles, but not with this one. There's no doubt that it was the Apostle Paul. He references, he introduces it as coming from him, but there's also references throughout the thing that are only applicable to him. So there's no doubt that it's the Apostle Paul. He introduces it from the very first verse, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Philippi. But the letter also reflects Paul's style, his mind, and his character. We know that Paul was in prison. 
when he wrote this book. One, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 tells us he was in prison. There, uh, there have been, uh, Paul was in prison in a bunch of places. I don't know if y'all are familiar with all that, but he was in prison um, in, in Caesarea. He was in prison in Ephesus. He was actually in prison in, Philipp in Philippi, that, that city as well. And then he was in prison in Rome. Why was Paul in prison? The book of Acts tells us of the several times that Paul was thrown into prison. He had been thrown in prison in Philippi because he cast out a demon from a fortune teller and he ruined that man's uh, income. And so that man went and got criminal charges pressed and, and we've heard about the Philippine jailer and all that kind of stuff. The Lord opened the jail that night and he used those circumstances to bring the Philippian jailer and his household to salvation through Paul's preaching. The circumstances that led to the imprisonment mentioned in this letter though occurred when Paul returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary trip. And do y'all ever look at the back of the Bible, the, the, um, the maps? y'all ever look at that? And it shows Paul's first missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey, Paul's third missionary journey. This was after his third missionary journey. He went back to Jerusalem, and when he went, he had, fulfilled, he, he had made a vow that he was going to go pray in the temple, and he fulfilled that vow, and his enemies started a riot trying to kill him. Roman soldiers rescued Paul, and then they held him in prison to find out the accusations. He was moved to Caesarea for his safety after a plot to murder him in jail was discovered. He remained there for two years because he wouldn't pay a bribe to the governor, Felix. The next governor, Festus, also kept Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. He was, he was trying to appease the, the, the priests and the, the Sadducees and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who are so often our, uh, our bad guy in our stories. He was then eventually sent to Rome by ship. And the reason he was, he was able to do that is he was born a Roman citizen. This is also going to become important later on. But because he was a Roman citizen, he could actually appeal his jail term to, to Caesar himself. He could say, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve to have my matter heard in front of the emperor. And so he was transferred to Rome where he waited trial another two years before he was finally brought before Caesar. And there are several statements in Philippians that indicate Paul was writing from Rome. He states that his imprisonment had, a, had an impact on the Praetorian Guard. Those are the people who guarded Caesar. So we, we kind of know he had to be in Rome because it was the Praetorian Guard. He also sends greetings from the saints in Caesar's household. So while he was there, he actually starts to win converts in the emperor's household. That's in chapter 4, verse 22. Paul's statement in Philippians shows that he knew that death was a possibility. He says that in 1, 20 through 23, and that he was confident that he would be set free to continue his ministry if he could come back to them. And he says that in 24 and 26, that the only place where he would have been, he would have, his life would have been at stake was in Rome. Only, the, only Caesar would have been able to put a Roman citizen to death. The, 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 the governors, Felix, would not have been able to do that. So it, 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 we think he was in Rome. We're pretty sure he was in Rome. And, and he would have had these guards watching him uh, all the time. They did jail a little different back then. He was actually able to go rent a house. He was still being guarded by the, the, the police, but he rented a house and he was able to live in a house and he was able to help the church. I mean, he was able to build the church while he was in prison technically. And so the year would have been about 61 AD. It's very important to keep Paul's circumstances in mind throughout the study of this book. This is a man who had been unjustly put in prison. He may have already been in prison for up to four years by the time he is writing this. While he believes that he will be released, he is also aware that the judgment could go against him and he will be put to death. Yet, he is full of joy. He is full of joy. I bet no one in this room has been in the circumstances he's been in exactly 
with the idea that I could be put to death at any moment. None of us have been in that situation. So whatever you're facing, Paul's faced it just as bad or worse. Yet he was having a joyful situation. He's gone through all of this and still has joy. That's one of the reasons why I believe Philippians is such a powerful book. Because it expresses that we can have joy no matter our circumstances. So now let's look at the people that Paul is writing to. It's important to note the relationship and the condition of the Philippian church. Some nine or ten years earlier from when Paul writes the book of Philippians is when he first went to Philippi and established the church. So he goes and establishes the church, and then later on he's writing this letter to them to to check on them, to make sure they're okay. So this was on his second missionary trip is when he establishes the church at Philippi. And those events are recorded in Acts 16. We all have read the stories. He had been visiting the churches in Asia Minor. That's, that's Turkey, if you know where, uh, you know, there's Greece and Turkey right next to it. He had been on the Turkish side of the Aegean Sea, and he had established some churches there. And then Paul, God gave Paul a vision and said, go to Macedonia. That's northern Greece. Paul did this, and he landed at a town called Neapolis. And from there, he went to a town called Philippi. It was Paul's practice whenever he went to a new city, a city he had never been to to preach before, is he would go and he would find the synagogue. He would look for the, the believers, the Jews that were there, because this would be something, the message he was preaching would be something they would be somewhat receptive to because it was from their tradition. Philippi did not have a synagogue. That means, at least as far as we can determine, that means there was not a large Jewish population in Philippi. So he goes, he goes to look for a synagogue. There is no synagogue. So he goes out by the riverside, and he finds a place to pray, and then he begins to speak to the people who were gathered there at the riverside. It was here that the very first European convert to Christianity ever happened, and we know what her name is. She sold purple. Lydia. Lydia, the seller of purple, her eyes were open to Christ and she responded to the gospel that was preached by Paul in verse 14. Her household all responded and they were baptized. Now, uh, uh, the, kind of the next thing that happened is Paul cast out the, the devil from the fortune teller. He gets arrested. The next convert is the Philippian jailer. So Paul's making all these, these inroads, you know, all of a sudden, every time the devil tried to put out the fire, you know, the Lord is like, here, I'll, I'll start a new fire. There's one over here. Uh, it's probable that Luke was with him in Philippi for a long time, and, um, and, and, and he even may have stayed after Paul left because the church at Philippi is described in so many ways. And, and throughout this chapter, these, these chapters in Philippians, you're going to see they were a mature church. They weren't some off the wall, Paul's having to write and correct everything they're doing. This was a mature church, so it suggests that maybe they had a little bit more pastoral influence than, than some of the other churches. It doesn't appear that Paul himself was able to spend a lot of time on that first visit, although he did give them much exhortation. But he came back on his third missionary trip, and he stayed longer. Um, One thing we have to also notice, and Paul tells us this, is that the Philippians were very poor. The, The Christian church in Philippians was poor, but they were generous. They always gave. The only exception would, be, would have been Lydia, who was the seller of purple, because that would have been a high-status job. She would have been relatively wealthy, but she would have been an exception. Paul comments in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, that the churches of Macedonia joyfully gave out of their deep poverty beyond their ability to— re- they were actually sending money to help the poor in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? These new churches who had been set up were sending money to help the poor. And that, that's another one of those things that made me think of Bentley. We're, we're not made up of a bunch of rich people. 
But this is a giving church, always a giving church. Everybody wants to give to whatever we're doing in this. Everybody pulls together and wants to give. And that reminded me of this church. Paul had also been a recipient of their generosity. And I know I'm going into a lot of detail. Please stay with me. I know some of your eyes are glazing over. I understand that. Next week will be better, I promise. But, but, but there's a lot that we, I, I want to set the scene for you. I, I, I'm going into a lot of detail, but I want you to understand the context of how Paul could have so much joy and also how he could know that his message of joy was going to be received by the people he was talking to. I want you to know about Paul and I want you to know about the Philippians. Stay with me. I promise I am going somewhere. Let me tell you one more thing about the city of Philippi, and this one is the one that's always drawn me to the book of Philippians. The city of Philippi was a very strategic spot. It was founded by Philip II, that's the father of Alexander the Great. We've all heard of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's dad founded this city. And it was at this location in 42 BC that the Roman Republic forces under Brutus and Cassius, we've heard those names, right? In our history books, we've heard those names. Brutus and Cassius were defeated by the Roman Imperial forces under Mark Anthony and Octavian. Now, Octavian would become the first Caesar. This is real, real important. The, the Imperial forces beat the Republic forces. Sounds like we're Star Wars all of a sudden. So basically, Darth Vader won, Luke Skywalker lost. Um, so Anthony and Octavian then established, because the battle had been fought in Philippi, they made the people of Philippi Roman citizens. Nowhere else in the entire, uh, in, in the entire Mediterranean world was anybody a citizen, the whole city, a member of the Roman, like you were a Roman citizen if you were born in Philippi. That's huge. Think of all the, think of what it means to be an American citizen. You travel abroad and you get in trouble. There's an embassy and there's an ambassador who's going straight downtown to, to help you. That's exactly like it was for Rome, only maybe even more powerful. Because the U.S., we'll probably use diplomacy first. Rome would like send in an, a legion, you know, like waste, lay waste to your city. So it was very, very important. And Philippi was the only city who had that power outside of the Italian peninsula. And so that, that had real meaning. And it made the city basically a little Rome. And the result was that the Philippian citizens were Roman citizens. It's a huge deal. They used the Latin language. They used Latin coins. The civil leaders were appointed in Rome. They weren't even from the local governor. And they were proud of that status. And it is with this in mind that Paul makes reference to Christians. Okay, imagine for a second. What, we're all proud. Everybody in this room is proud to be an American, aren't you? We're proud to be Americans. It would be just like Paul standing up here and saying, you're not citizens of the United States. He said, you're citizens of heaven. These people had the most valuable citizenship in the world at that time. They were citizens of Rome and they were proud of it. And Paul tells them in this letter, and it's one of the things that leads to joy, is you're not a citizen of Rome. You're a citizen of heaven. And so all of a sudden, we start to see how important all this stuff, and, and this is going to lead to them even being able to rejoice with him once they get this, this concept. He also encouraged them to continue in their faithful walk with the Lord, to, to watch for the dangers that would disrupt their unity and, and, their, and for interpersonal conflict. So what can we expect to learn over the next few months as we study the book of Philippians? Now I'm going to sort of give you a signpost of all the stuff that we're going to cover the major lesson that we will learn will be the practical application of our relationship to the Lord with our daily life. 
The book of Philippians shows that Christians should live joyfully in peace because of Jesus Christ, regardless of our circumstances. And even as Christians, I know it's so easy for us to get caught up in our circumstances. you, You have a bad day. You have a bad week. You get really bad news. It is real easy to get tunnel vision, isn't it? Like all of a sudden, I can't see anything else but this problem in, in front of me. And, I, and, and I, I, I'll be honest with you, there are days where it's like it's hard to even think about my relationship with Jesus because this problem has gotten. And, and what Paul's trying to tell us is, look, don't worry about your circumstance. Trust in me. Trust in the Lord all the time. And, and that's, that's, it's, it's such a powerful message for us to get because it is so easy to get bogged down in our circumstances. We, we, we can look at uh, the example of Peter in Matthew 14. We're told the, the story of when the disciples were walking or were on the boat in Galilee during that storm and they saw Jesus walking towards them. And Jesus said, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. What a, we would all, I don't know what we would all do if we were on a boat and Jesus comes walking across the water. I know what I would love to say I would do, but I'm not sure what I would do. And Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And we know the story. Peter got out of the boat. He started walking towards Jesus. He's walking on the water. And Peter was doing great as long as he was looking at Jesus. We know the story. Everybody in here knows the story. And when all of a sudden he realized, oh, my Lord, I'm walking on water. And he starts looking at the water. And he didn't look at Jesus for just a second. And all of a sudden he starts to sink. He was doing great till he took his eyes off of Jesus and he started looking at his circumstance and the wind was blowing and he became afraid and he started to sink and Jesus rescued him. But Jesus also admonished him and Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. How many times have we been in that boat before? Sometimes I do wish God would be like, you you have no faith, Chris. Just, you're not listening to me, Chris. But, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? The circumstances had not changed, had they? Peter's out there walking on water. He was doing it before, and he was, well, he was doing it poorly after. But the circumstance, the storm hadn't gotten worse or better. It was still stormy. There was still spray. Lightning was probably flashing in the distance. It was still a storm. But Peter's perspective changed. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he started looking down at the water. And all of a sudden he doubted and he began to sink. And throughout our study in Philippians, we're going to learn the principles that are needed to be applied in our lives to give us a proper perspective, always keeping our proper perspective. And we're going to see how they're lived out in the lives of Paul, Timothy, and the Philippian believers. We're going to learn from their example how we can keep our eyes on Jesus As we follow those examples and we apply those principles in our lives, we are going to become more joyful. You're going to see joy increase in your life. You're going to see peace increase in your life. You're going to become more peaceful regardless of the circumstances that you are facing. We are in a messed up world, guys. It it, it seems like it gets worse and worse and worse every single day. I, I, I have stopped watching the news. I'm just being honest. I know some people, y'all come home and you turn on Fox. I, I doubt I'm talking to any, any MSNBC viewers in here. But I know I'm talking to some Fox viewers. I don't watch that anymore. I don't need to be just inundated with negative messages. 
I just don't need that. I've I, I got to put my eyes on Jesus. And if I'm listening to all that, I'm not getting on to anybody. I really am not. But we can't listen to negative stuff all day and expect to keep our perspective right. I, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not a citizen down here. I'm a citizen of heaven. And if we follow these principles, we will become more joyful. We will become more peaceful. Even though the world is going crazy around us, it does not mean we will not have negative emotions. Wouldn't it be nice if the day we found Jesus Christ, all of our sadness, all of our loneliness, all of our depression and despair and grief, all that just went away? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be nice if we never had to experience loneliness or abandonment? But it, does not, but it doesn't happen. That, that doesn't happen for believers because it rains on the just and the unjust, the Bible tells us. And we can, but now what we have is we are empowered to work through all that stuff with the aid of a wonderful, wonderful Savior, a wonderful, wonderful Father. We don't have to live in depression. We don't have to live on emotional roller coasters. It, most of our society is on an emotional roller coaster. Most everybody that we see out there, they're up one day, down the next, sometimes up and down 10 times in one day. And they go to their doctors and they, they describe all these symptoms and the doctor says, well, here, take 14 different kinds of medicine. And they find that that doesn't help either because it has side effects. I, what I, I, I'm not saying don't take medicine that your doctor has prescribed for you, but I am telling you that there are some things that we worry about, that we have anxiety about, that we don't need to have anxiety and worry about. Don't stop taking your medication without your doctor's permission. But what I'm telling you is we can start taking some of this stuff to heart and we might be able to go to the doctor and say, look, I, I'm, I'm level. I have found my joy in Jesus Christ, and I, I don't think I need this stuff anymore. That's, that's all I'm saying. So, I'm a lawyer. Got to give a little, uh, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> and I'm not mocking anybody who is, I, I understand absolutely. I have gone through depression in my life too. I have experienced it. I know what it feels like. It is overwhelming. It feels like you're at the bottom of a hole and people are pouring cement into that hole. I know what it feels like, so I'm not knocking it at all. I've been there, but I'm telling you, I, I, this perspective that we're going to start talking about in Philippians is going to change all of our worldviews. It's going to change us. I believe it with all my heart. For exa one example, let me just give you a great example. In chapter 1, we find that Paul is joyful even though he is in prison. It is not that he is happy about being in prison, but rather he sees that God is using his imprisonment for a better purpose. It's, it's for the progress of the gospel. Things were happening that never would have happened for the cause of Christ if he wasn't in jail. There are those who are preaching and specifically thinking they will cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. This was actually happening while he's in jail. There are those who are going around who are preaching and trying to distress Paul while he's in jail. And Paul is joyful because, hey, I don't care if they're preaching to make me feel bad or not. They're still preaching Jesus Christ. What a, that's the, this is Paul. Paul, an apostle, you know, and, and he's not worried about people out there preaching to make him mad. He's just glad that the gospel's being proclaimed. It is this kind of perspective that enables Paul to encourage the Philippians. He was confident that God, which had begun a good work in them, would complete it until the day of the Lord. 
here are some of the things, the rest, the rest of the things that we're going to learn in this chapter of our study of, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1, we learn a lot more about Paul and Timothy. What a great pair these two were. They were greatly used by the Lord. They're excellent examples of us on how to live and follow God. They're heroes of the faith. They stand in stark contrast to people that we consider heroes today. It's not who plays for, you know, for the New England Patriots or the Kansas City Chiefs. That's not the hero in, in my life. That's, I don't want that to be the heroes of my kids' lives. I want Paul and Timothy to be the heroes in my kids' lives. It's not actors and actresses or politicians. It's these kind of guys that I want Paul and Timothy. Heroes should be people of integrity and character worthy of emulation. Paul and Timothy are such people. Chapter 1 also in, introduces us to proper church structure. Some of the things that we'll learn is, is, the, uh, is, is the, the qualifications and things like that that Paul establishes. Other things that we will learn in chapter 1 include how to participate with missionaries. This is actually covered in Philippians, is how to participate with, Philippi, uh, with, with missionaries. We're going to learn how God's sovereignty increases our trust and our confidence in the future. We're going to learn how to properly pray for those that we're ministering to. We're going to learn how to be joyful when persecuted. Paul was able to do all of those things because of how he understood his life and his purpose. People generally live for themselves, don't they? We're all selfish. Ain't nobody in this room that's not selfish. We, we will bother ourselves sometimes for the people we love, for our family, but that's about it. And I'm not saying, it's just we got one life and, and you lose that one and you lost it, Right? That's our perspective. Paul's going to give us another perspective. People are generally protective of their life because of that. We've only got one, so we do everything we can to preserve it. Paul was different on both accounts. His life was so wrapped up in serving Jesus Christ that he states in verse 21, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He is saying here that I do not fear death. And it's even more than a lack of fear going on in his life. Paul is saying, I look forward to death because I know that I will then be with Jesus. At the same time, he also desires to stay down here and serve Jesus Christ. He wishes to remain in the flesh in order to have that ministry. But the purpose, there are two different things he's desiring, completely different outcomes. One is his death and the other is to stay down here and, and serve Jesus Christ. But the purpose, do y'all see, the purpose is the same. It's for me to live as Christ, for me to die as Christ. Everything is to Christ. We will also learn how to gain that perspective in our own lives. Finally, in chapter 1, we find that Paul gives a challenge to the Philippians that they stand firm in the spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That could have been written to Bentley. It's the same message we have been taught, right spirits and right attitudes, unity and love in this place, peace and understanding, truth and reconciliation. We are not and never have been a church of whispering and complaining. This has been a church of love and acceptance. I walked in these doors seven years ago, and y'all loved me back to health. Spiritual, emotional, and mental health. Y'all loved me back to health. We're, we're, we, we've always been a church of love. Brother Bruce calls us a family, and, and, and I, man, employers will often say, hey, we're all a family. We're going to have a pizza party for you guys. You get sick and you get fired and they've replaced you in a week. This place is not that. This, this place, I hug so many necks when I walk in here. It's like a family reunion every Sunday. This is a family place. This is a, a group of people who love each other. That, that's a, not an abstract concept for this church. We are a healing and safe environment for weary sinners. Exactly right. 
And Paul is encouraging the church in Philippians to be like Bentley. And he gives some really good reasons why it's necessary. That unity that we have in this place, it's necessary so that we might endure the same manner of persecution that Paul endured because it's going to come. Persecution will come. It's no different for us, and it's so good for us to keep on hearing it. We need to stand firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, for we can be sure that we will face persecution. I'm not an alarmist. I, I really am not. But the reality is that Jesus warned all of his followers, you will face persecution. John 16 and 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. We have seen an incredible loss of freedom of religion in this, in this country in the last generation. And with it, we've seen a corresponding increase in anti-Christian sentiment and actions in society and in government. I stand by the word generation, and I, 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 I use that word and I stand by it, but I have seen things happen in the last three years that have blown my mind. How fast the ground has shifted under our feet. And how severe our future persecution may become, I don't know. We can't even begin to speculate. But there have been Christians in this country who have been put in prison for what they have done for the cause of Christ in the United States of America. But even if physical persecution does not occur, we're going to experience persecution. We all will. Verbal and social persecution, we will experience it. Jesus prepared us for this in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. This is from our Sermon on the Mount series. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven and it's great, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. We will learn how to do this in the book of Philippians. In chapter 2, Paul explains the basis of being in the same spirit and mind, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit and intent on the same purpose, and it's our humility. We are to regard one another as more important than ourselves and look out for the interests of others more than our own. Paul uses the supreme example of humility, Jesus Christ, the one who set aside all his glory and came down and died on the cross. And through that sacrifice, God hath highly exalted him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. We, from this example, we learn how important that this theological truth about Jesus and the pattern is set for us to follow. God is doing his work in us. Therefore, there's no reason for us to grumble, complain, or dispute with one another. Instead, our godly behavior is to appear as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And that leads to rejoicing. Because it's a cause for rejoicing. And Paul, in chapter 3, Paul warns about the dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision. He's talking about false religious leaders, false prophets. We spent a couple of weeks on that a little while ago. We must be aware of such people. We should not be impressed by people's self-proclaimed religious credentials, how many rules they follow or how long they've been a Christian. Paul counted his own credentials as rubbish. The only genuine credential is found in a life that presses on for the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what that is. That sounds lofty, but let me tell you what it is. That means you live down here as a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen. You're a stranger and a pilgrim in the United States. You're not from Grant Parish. You're not from Louisiana. You're not from the USA. You are from a heavenly country. 
We need to make sure we are living our lives for the right purpose and that we are reaching for the correct prize. We also need to learn how to keep from becoming self-righteous. That deceptive sin of self-righteousness keeps popping up and Jesus warned us about that over and over in the Sermon on the Mount and now Paul is warning us here again, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself for self-righteousness. Get rid of it and instead be tender-hearted even towards those who have fallen away. And finally, in chapter 3, we find out what it means to have our citizenship in heaven and that wonderful hope we have because of that. It's a concept and a teaching of the Bible that has consumed me of, lately, uh, of late. I want to be a citizen of a better country. Amen. It is always encouraging to consider the kingdom of God as it operates down here and the promise of what is to come. Because there's a kingdom of heaven down here, a kingdom of God down here that we're trying to be a part of, and there's a kingdom that is coming. In chapter 4, Paul encourages two women who are in conflict to live in harmony with each other. This, this, this book goes from the really big to the little. There's a whole lot for us all to get. We also learn in chapter 4 about prayer. Too many people treat prayer as a wish list because they, they don't really understand the purpose of prayer. And the reason they don't understand the purpose of prayer is that they don't really understand God. He's not a cosmic genie who grants our request. He is the self-sufficient God of the universe who created all things for His glory. And his desire is for us, his adopted children, to talk with him. And we're going to learn about that. Paul also addressed having a proper mindset. Christians wonder at times why we struggle so much living that Christian life and we lack peace. We will learn to control our minds and gain the peace of God, which passes all comprehension. We will learn the secret of contentment in all circumstances. It's not really a secret. It's right there in all the 66 books of the Bible. But it's important to note that Paul had learned it. It did not come automatically, but it was gained over time. In the midst of all those things, those, remember, sometimes those trials and temptations are sent by God to make us into the Christian he wants us to be. And finally, we're going to learn the importance of giving with graciousness and receiving with thankfulness. Both are important lessons for living in the joy of the Lord. I'm looking forward to this study. I'm so looking forward because I know there's much I still have to learn about being truly joyful in all circumstances and expressing that joy in a way that glorifies God. Remember what I said a few weeks ago when we were talking about false prophets? We are to study to show ourselves approved. We're studying to show ourselves approved. Remember the, the word that follows is, is workman in the KJV, but it really is a craftsman. It's someone who has mastered, they have taken the time, they have learned all the intricate ways that the word is to be used and they've applied it to their lives and they are now masters. You're a craftsman. We're not just day laborers for Jesus Christ. We're craftsmen for Jesus Christ and the word is our tool that we, that we work and, and we, we, we mold ourselves and we, we create this thing, that God is, this, this thing that God has given us and we take it and we make it and we become craftsmen of the gospel. Remember that we are to show ourselves approved, rightly divining the word of truth. And that's what we're going to be doing, studying the word, digging deep into the word of God. You started this with your 18-month uh, series on John. So it's his fault that I'm doing these long series is because there was so much to be gained when he went verse. Y'all remember how many summers ago was that? Was that 19? I think it was 19 when Brother Bruce went through John just verse by verse by verse by verse. I saw John like I'd never seen John before when we went through that. And that he's, it's his fault if I take a long time going through this. But we are going to study the Word. And I trust that you're also looking forward to this and that God will use it in a similar way in your lives. 
my time is up and they're not going to do any music. I just want to pray for us. Father, we come to you today as a group of people. We want to sit at your table and eat. We were invited a, a few moments ago in the song to come and dine. Your word is the bread of life to us. It feeds us. It gives us strength for the journey. It is what sustains us, God. And we are sitting at that table this morning, and we are eating of that word, God. We want it in our hearts. We want it in our minds. We want it in our spirit. We want to study to show ourselves approved. We want to be craftsmen of your word, not just workers, but craftsmen of your word. We want to hide your word in our hearts so that we do not sin against you. God, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive all of these things that you're giving to us, Lord. Help us to grow in Christ. Help us to live free in you, God. I pray a special blessing on this group of people, God. Let, let our minds stay fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.